bring new possibilities. The Palace Theater, your palace, your place. Shows for the whole family. Waterbury Palace, your palace, your place. Waterbury Palace Theater. Welcome to the Palace Theater's Broadway Buzz, presented by Webster Bank. My name is Stuart Brown, founder of the 24-7 online Broadway radio station, soundsofbroadway.com. If you are looking for nonstop Broadway music, tune into soundsofbroadway.com, playing the best from off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage. I'll be your host for this podcast series. On today's program, excerpts from my conversation with musical theater lyricist Susan Birkenhead. Ms. Birkenhead made her Broadway debut as one of the team of songwriters contributing to the musical Working in 1978, and she received her first Tony Award nomination for that show. Her second Tony Award nomination came for Jelly's Last Jam in 1992. She has worked with such notable composers as Julie Stein, Charles Strauss, Henry Krieger, among others. Additional Broadway credits include Triumph of Love. Also, she wrote additional lyrics for the Cole Porter musical High Society in 1998. Susan has also written a number of off-Broadway shows and a number of musicals that have never seen the light of day. We'll also talk about her new musical coming up this summer or fall, hopefully, and that is Betty Boop. So we talked about a number of aspects of the musical theater, shows she has written, and an exclusive about that new musical, Betty Boop. Brings me to a question about when you are working on a show. Is there a set time frame on the amount of time you are given to write the score? Or is it sometimes you and a partner could do it in four months or six months? Mm -hmm. Is it a year? Does it really depend? Well, these days, no show just gets written and then put up in rehearsal. Right. You have an endless series of readings and workshops. And there's always a deadline for any given reading or workshop. Because what happens is you write something and you work on it for a long time. All of, you know, the three of you or the two of you, if it's somebody doing music and lyrics. And it looks great on paper. You get to the point where it looks really great on paper. And then you invite some actor friends over and you sit around a table and you read it. And then you go back because it all sounds different coming out of actors' mouths. Yes. Then you go back and you do more work. And then you invite them back. Only this time the producers are sitting there too. And you read through it again and they have notes. And so you go back and you work on the notes again with another deadline. And then you do a workshop because a reading is 29 hours. Equity actors can only work for 29 hours or whatever this pittance of money is. A hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's really shameful. But if you do a workshop, that's a longer period of time. And the actors are invested more in that. Then you have other baggage that comes with that. So they don't like to do a workshop until they've done enough readings to be reasonably sure of this cast. Even then, the cast gets thrown into the air and juggled because this one says, we can't raise money with him. Or that one says, I don't know, he looks really short next to her. You know, the investors. Then you do a workshop. Then based on the workshop, which is a little more rehearsed than a reading, 
again, the show sounds different. Then you work towards a staged workshop where the choreographer gets into it too. You get them up on their feet and you stage it a little bit. Then it looks completely different and you go back and work again. I'm just curious. And I don't want to keep bringing up sort of, like I said, the golden age, but- Very different. Yeah, I mean, it just seems you've had- a lot of very, very successful musicals yeah. and they didn't have all this. I mean, has it evolved to a point now where it's kind of overkill or is yes. this necessary? Kill a show. They killed the night. They killed Minsky's. They killed it dead. What happens is, first of all, in those days, you had very experienced producers who trusted the creative teams. Uh, They gave plenty of notes, believe me, and threatened all kinds of things. But they gave everybody a chance to breathe and to get the show into good enough shape to go into rehearsal. Once rehearsal started, then they were relentless. Everybody was relentless. But again, your life depended on it. So people did their very best work. This all started with Michael Bennett and a chorus line because Joe Pat gave him carte blanche and said, develop this, Michael. I'm giving you a rehearsal room. I'm giving you a cast. Develop it however you want. And he had an endless series of workshops. Endless. And when he was satisfied that it was almost good enough to show to Joe, then he let Joe Papp come in and see it. And then they worked on it some more. And that was the beginning of the whole workshop thing. And then what happened, too, was that everything got more expensive. Producers were not experienced and they became afraid. They were terrified that they would raise all this front money and then the New York Times would kill them and it would all be over. And so it was a combination of fear and inexperience and the inability to trust people who had done this all their lives. Susan Birkenhead talking about the long process of putting a new musical onto the stage. Personally, I always find it interesting to learn about how musicals are brought to life by all these creative minds. We just heard a little bit about that in the previous clip. Here, Susan talks about the genesis of the 1992 Broadway musical Jelly's Last Jam, and that starred Gregory Hines. It opened on Broadway April 26, 1992, and ran for 569 performances. Can you talk about Jelly's Last Jam? I was, uh, my husband was a theatrical lawyer, a great theatrical lawyer. And his partner was a woman named Floria Lasky. And Floria represented Ahmed Erdogan, who ran Atlantic Records. I think he, he was the head honcho there. And he was doing a Duke Ellington musical where the Duke had written book music and lyrics, but it didn't work. So they hired this young kid named George Seawolf, who had done the Colored Museum at the Public, and they hired him to do a new book. And he did it at some theater in Philadelphia, and he kept saying to them, I can't make this work. You got to get me a lyricist. You have to give me free reign with Ellington's music and let me just go from scratch here. So they couldn't find a lyricist. And uh, what's her name? Floria Lasky said to Ahmed, Julie Stein has this woman who is his lyricist and he's crazy about her. And Ahmed, I think you should talk to her. So they brought me into a meeting, all these people sitting around in a circle. And there was one young person there at the meeting and uh, he 
was very frenetic and he had this ponytail and he said, uh, uh, um, I'm the book writer. So um, um, I'm going to tell you what, what it is we want here. So he said, we need a song. This was Friday. We need a song Tuesday. It's always on a Tuesday. I want you to write a song for Queenie and here are the circumstances. And he said, the first part of the song is like really Sondheim-y, which I know you can do. He said, but then she gets really wrought up and she slides into the blues. So I said, okay, I need your phone number because I can do the Sondheim-y part. And I do know a lot about the blues, but I ne- I'm going to need to consult with you. And over the course of that weekend, we became inseparable. And the show was two or three weeks away from rehearsal. It had Patti LaBelle as Queenie. It had Robin Wagner was doing the sets, Theoni Aldrich. It had everything you could possibly want. But Ahmed had to go off and do his Atlantic record business, and he left it in the hands of a guy who was hopeless. And George had written a scene which was, to this day, maybe the most brilliant writing George has ever done for anything. It was a fantasy scene where she, Queenie wakes up in an Art Deco world with a platinum sun and a peach beach. And it was, I mean, it was the most fanciful, gorgeous, wonderful thing. And this guy didn't understand it. And in order to send this to some more investors, he rewrote the scene. And George called me up and he said, okay, sit down and don't cry. I said, what? (laughs) Because he knew all these shows had fallen apart. He said, we're not going to do Queenie Pie. And I started to cry. And he said, but I've been asked to do this other show. It's about Jelly Roll Morton. I don't really like Jelly Roll Morton, but it's going to be great. And so he took me in to meet Margot Lyon and Pam Coslow, who was married to Gregory Hines. And she said to me, I'm going to give you this book to read and you tell me the truth. Tell me what you think of it. And I read the book and it was so imaginative and crazy and wonderful. And I called her back and I said all of that. And she said, really? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I know it doesn't read that way, but if you know the way his mind works, because I've been working with him now for a while, I can see all of this. I promise you, this is genius. So she said, all right, I take your word for it. And so we began, but the music was a problem because they gave me cassettes of Jelly Roll Morton's music as is. And he wrote Dixieland and it was like 37 words to a measure. And I did it. Wasn't easy. I did it, but it wasn't working dramatically because the music has to work, has to do the same work that the lyrics do. It has to be part of the storytelling. And so George and I talked And he said, you know, there was somebody attached to this when it was Mr. Jelly Lord and Jerry Zachs was doing it way back before I came in. And his name was Luther Henderson. And he's, I said, Luther Henderson, who did Ain't Misbehaving. Luther was Juilliard trained. He could do anything. He could write any kind of music. He was the best orchestrator on Broadway, but people kept trying to give him black shows because he was black. And he and George and I just talked through every single moment of that show. We went through the entire catalog of Morton's music. And Luther would say, well, you know, 
I could take this and I could really slow it down. And I have a feeling that harmonically it would hold for what we want here. So there are crazy adaptations of Morton's music in that show. I don't know if you remember, there was a scene that all takes place in a bed. Jelly and Anita's relationship is all told in one big double bed. And the honeys push the bed around and they sing Lovin' is a low-down blues. And then they have little scenelets in between. Well, he took this really up-tempo funeral march, but New Orleans funeral march, which means up-tempo and fast, and he slowed it down. And it was magical. How was it writing for Gregory Hines? Because he was attached to the show, so you, you, sort of, you knew that he was going to be the person? Well, no, because Gregory didn't do regional theater. So we were going out to the Mark Taper Forum and we cast Oba Babatundi, who is a wonderful dancer, but not a tap dancer. We had cast Keith David from the, from the start, from the first workshop, and Ruben Santiago Hudson from the first workshop. In fact, our first jelly in the first workshop was David Allen Greer. But eventually, uh, when it came to doing the production, we used Oba. And we wrote the show around Oba, who was a great singer and a wonderful dancer. And he was fantastic in the show and he got great reviews. And Margot, who, you know, the kind of heart she had, Marissa, you'll recognize this. She ran into his dressing room. She grabbed him and she said, Oba, this part belongs to you. (laughs) And then we got back to New York And Gregory said, I changed my mind. And all the investors said, Gregory Hines, Gregory Hines, Gregory Hines. So we rewrote a lot of the show and we decided to use tap as a metaphor for the rhythms, for piano and his rhythm, those rhythms, the New Orleans rhythms that were in him, but he tried to deny. Can you pick a song from the show that you'd like to have us highlight? Well, I guess my, one of my favorite songs from the show is Gregory Hines and Tanya Pinkins doing the Last Chance Blues. Do you want to set that up? Anita is the love of Jelly's life, but they parted company a long time before. Jelly was always jealous and mean-spirited, and they had a falling out, and he hadn't seen her for years. And she, meanwhile, opened a cafe in Los Angeles with Jack the Bear, who was Jelly's best friend. And they were running this cafe and she was making red beans and rice, which was her specialty. And Jelly was really down on his luck. And he came looking for, I guess, a a place where he could play the piano and pick up some money. But before they actually met, the stage is a split stage and we see... Anita in her cafe and Jelly down on his luck, singing about the sort of last chance that both of them are going to have. One day the world is sitting in your sweet young hand 
Then all at once you turn around and there you stand. The face you barely recognize. The little lines around the eyes. Talking about the last chance blue. Legs are getting slower. Got nowhere to go. Money getting lower, and people saying no. Broken dreams and wasted bets. Now and then, a few regrets. Talk about your last chance blue. to the nines in ten years out of date <laughs> New York Times says of yesterday's news I got the last chance blues What if I whispered low Sweet man I need you so just once kept my finger off the fuse But I had to fight, prove I was right, and that's the thing about the last chance blues. What if I never lied? What if just once I tried to say how I really feel instead of pushing her away? If I'd known what I had to lose. I wouldn't be singing these last chance blues. Tanya Pinkins and Gregory Hines from Jelly's Last Jam with Last Chance Blues. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Susan Birkenhead after this short break. 
Where can you hear the best music from Off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage? The answer, soundsofbroadway.com, your 24-7 online Broadway music radio station. Listen to selections from well-known, popular, and more obscure musicals from the most diverse playlists anywhere. That's soundsofbroadway.com. Let's go on with the show. We're all living through an unusual time together, but each one of us is dealing with it differently. Webster Bank is here to help you move forward at whatever pace is right for you. Whether you're taking small steps or big, bold ones. Whether you're refocusing on your future, re-energizing your business, or reconnecting with everyone you love, Webster will help you take your next steps on your time. Welcome back to the Broadway Buzz. My name is Stuart Brown. Let's go back to my conversation with lyricist Susan Birkenhead, this time talking about her involvement with the Broadway musical of the Cole Porter, I guess you can say jukebox musical, High Society. Let's talk about one more show. Can you talk about High Society? It's a Cole Porter, I guess in a way, jukebox musical, but how were you involved with Cole Porter? What happened was that Arthur Copet, who was a friend of mine, was doing the book for High Society, had been asked to do the book. And Arthur Copet told the Dodgers, who were the producers, that he could use, he had been given permission to use almost the entire oeuvre of Cole Porter's. But he said, listen, there are places where I'm going to need book songs. And what do I do? And the man who was sort of in charge of the Cole Porter estate said, well, there are some songs I can allow you to fool around with and write new lyrics for almost. And there are some you can't touch. So Arthur said, well, he said, I have a lyricist in mind. And, you know, and he mentioned me to this guy who knew me. And so we went into a rehearsal studio for two or three days with Carolee Carmelo and Greg, her husband, Greg Edelman. Carolee was like nine months pregnant. And those two, bless their hearts, sang through the entire catalog of Cole Porter. And Arthur and I took notes and we conferred with this man. And he said, okay, so you can use this, this, and this. And here's a song that was never really finished. And you can have this, you know, tabula rasa. You can just take this music and create whatever you want with it. But you can also, Arthur said, I need... We're throwing a ball tonight. I need that completely rewritten. And he said, okay, fine. And then he said, and I also need, don't scream. I need a swell party rewritten, like 90%. And he said, well, we'll see. Let's see. And then Arthur said, I need an opening number and I don't have one here. And Paul Gemignani, who was the musical director, said, you know, I've been looking at some pieces of music And he said, I'm going to cobble something together with what you're talking about, what the director was talking about. And he said, and Susan, you take a crack at it. Let's see what we come up with. So Paul cobbled together this music, which was on track music and little bits and snatches of other things. And we wrote an opening and it was a great opening. It was really terrific. Well, should we play that opening then? Well, I wonder if you should play the opening or with throwing a ball tonight is my favorite. Okay. Or, I mean, I wrote seven songs for that show. I guess, I guess we're throwing a ball tonight is the best. And Anna Kendrick 
first thing ever. She came down from Maine to audition for the show. She was the best kid. She was wonderful. She was wonderful. She's on it, too. Willie, you're throwing a ball tonight. Aha! Why? Tracy's getting married tomorrow. Really? Isn't that fantastic? Roughly speaking, how many people are coming to this little shindig of mine? About 700. And it's going to be the grandest party of 1938. The whole world used to clamor for invitations to wild parties fraught with glamour as only you can do. Now when the niece you cherish must party or perish, Uncle Willie darling, we're counting on you. So get out the gin and bitters, grab every hors d'oeuvre in sight. The time is here, Willie dear, you're throwing a ball tonight. Take something to calm your jitters, it's nothing you want to fight. The call is clear, give a cheer, you're throwing a ball tonight. The man who caters brought all his waiters, food I presume. The floors are polished and blooms are polished. Your tears and troubles, the climate du jour is light. And here's to you, entre nous, you're throwing a ball tonight. He forgot my last three birthdays, and he calls you, what's her name? But we don't react, we smile, in fact, it's just he's... What? He's... Not quite entirely to blame. Though his mind may sometimes wander, it will make its way safely back. Yes, but as he nips, his trolley slips another inch off track. Dinah! Dinah! Now I remember, you're getting married, and I'm throwing a ball. I'm wild as a Princeton weekend, I'm high as a brother's right. So deck the halls, duty calls, we're throwing a ball tonight. The crowd is urban, so order bourbon. And things like piano. Get one soprano who plays piano. And sing something quiet and slow. There's plenty of sun this morning. And how was it sort of being a co-lyricist with Call Porter? Well, it was fantastic, but it almost cost me my marriage because when my husband heard the deal, we were at a party, I think, at the Conservancy in Central Park, and he put a glass of wine in my hand. He said, sit down and don't cry. See how everybody knows me? (laughs) He said, but you're not going to do this show. And I said, I have to do this show. He said, you're not going to do it. And he put a glass of wine in my hand. He said, sit down and don't cry. See how everybody knows me? <laughs> he said, but you're not going to do this show. And I said, but I, I want to do it. He said, it's the worst deal anybody has ever come up with in recorded history. You're not going to do it. And he told me what the deal was, which was shocking. I mean, it was a, it was a fee of something like $350 or something. No royalties. Because the cold Thursday uh-huh. took everything. And Arthur Copin, who was getting a greatly reduced royalty because the Barry estate took most of everything. Arthur Copin gave me a, a tiny little bit of his royalty because that's the kind of person Arthur was. But to be able to write Cole Porter and to be able to have some of the critics say, who knew that he wrote this 
you know, this, this other song we don't even know called High Society that was such a perfect opening for the show. And it wasn't Cole Porter, it was me and a lot of the other stuff. So that was worth the $350 embarrassment. And then, of course, they went on and did it in England where it was a huge hit at the old Vic. And I got $14.75 royalties. Well, I guess at least it's something that you can put into your bio. You know, (laughs) it was so much fun to do. It was so great to be able to do it. The last clip of my conversation with Susan Birkenhead is an exclusive about the new musical based on the Max Fleischman animated character, Betty Boop, and that is scheduled to go into production this summer, hopefully hitting Broadway for the 2021-22 season. Before we started taping this, you were saying, I have three shows, I have three separate Zoom meetings a day, I am (laughs) Zoomed out. Can you talk about some of the other shows that are not in this development hell? Oh, yes. Well, we have a great producer on Betty Boop. Really great producer. I love this man. I can't tell you how much I love this man. And he's very well experienced. His name is Bill Haber. And he was a television producer for a gazillion years. He still does that. But he also produced, he used to bring almost everything that was at the National Theater to Broadway, too. Jerry Mitchell is directing it. Bob Martin is writing the book. And David Foster is doing the music. We were supposed to have a big workshop on April 29th of 2020. But of course, by April 29th of 2020, we were all in lockdown. And, and he was great. He sent everybody, you know, Betty Boop cartoons and things and said, we'll, we'll be there. We'll be there. Don't worry. Equity apparently will allow us to do it this summer. So we've done a lot of rewrites in the meantime. You know, we've done a lot of the work. And this summer, we'll put it up on its feet for a workshop and see what we've got. How many readings did you guys do of that? I I remember the breakdown coming out for that. We did several readings in LA that were not good. First of all, we had a different book at that time, very different book. A really good friend of mine, who a woman who wrote a very funny, wonderful book, but it was hard for her to come to New York. Jerry wanted her in New York and it didn't work. But she wrote, God, it was a wonderful Wonderful book, funny, witty. She's really witty. So that was a different book. And we didn't have the wherewithal to teach songs to the actors out there. You know, we grabbed whatever New York actors were out there for pilot season. And we kind of read the book and David pre-recorded the songs and we just, he cued them up and played them. That never works. It just doesn't work. And then we came and we started doing them in New York and we did... We did a reading shortly before COVID struck. Was it? A, yes, it was. Was it a 29 hour? I don't even remember if it was a 29 hour. And then we did a couple of readings just for Bill Haber and a few other people where we just read the book as Bob was developing this new book. We had developed new songs. I mean, David and I were thrown into a room. He came to New York, which he hates doing. And he had a suite at the Carlisle and sat in that stuffy little suite. And we wrote, I don't know, 10 songs in nine days or something. Anyway, we finally got to the point where we were ready to do just a big workshop. And then nobody could go into a rehearsal room. 
So oh. we've been working on Zoom, and we now have this wonderful new book, very funny. And we have a whole bunch of songs that are remaining, but we have three new songs to write and some changes I want to do to some of the other songs naturally, because I'm obsessive compulsive when it comes to that. And so that's it. So this summer we'll, we'll be able to put it up. And if all goes well, he's ready to go. He's really ready to go. He has he and Mark Fleischer, who is the grandson of the man who created Betty Boop, and he has the financing and everything. He just wants wants to get it on a stage. This concludes this episode of the Broadway Buzz. I want to thank Susan Birkenhead for taking time out of her very busy schedule to chat with me. You have been listening to the Palace Theater's Broadway Buzz, presented by Webster Bank, and the Palace Theater is located in Waterbury, Connecticut. My name is Stuart Brown, founder of the 24-7 online Broadway radio station, soundsofbroadway.com. If you are looking for nonstop Broadway music, tune into soundsofbroadway.com, playing the best from off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage. Thank you for listening. I hope you will join me on our next episode. Until then, stay safe, be well, and be informed with the Broadway Buzz. Entertaining new possibilities. The Palace Theater, your palace, your place. Shows for the whole family. Waterbury Palace, your palace, your place. Waterbury Palace.